Welcome to Center Maryland's The Lobby Pod. Uh, I'm going to be ingracious here because this is just uh, a big moment for the podcast. Uh, We have a remarkably special guest in our family. We would call this a real treat. Uh, This is uh, really the Tom Brady of the Maryland Lobbying Corps. Uh, He is the greatest of all time. I've seen this person operate since I walked into the legislature's doors in 1997, this time of year, 1997. And uh, I'm talking about the one and only Joe Bryce. Joe, welcome. Thank you. That was quite an intro. I'm not even done yet. I know (laughs) because you are like the sterling example of what to be when you walk into Annapolis, I know your whole background. So I want to share it. And you could tell me how much is legend and how much is accurate to cut me off at any point. But here's my understanding of your career. You started, or maybe I should, should I let you talk about your career? Yeah, I'm happy to. So Um, why don't you tell me? Because I, you know, and then I'll fill in like number one at Georgetown or, but talk to me, maybe you want to start it. Can you start at BK Miller? Uh, yeah. So, um, when I was, uh, in college, I interned through the English department with, um, then Senator Tommy Bromwell. And, uh, around the same time I happened to, uh, pledge a fraternity where Mike's son, Tommy was a member and this is the Senate president, Thomas, the Mike Senate Miller. president, Mike Miller. And I um, needed something to do between college and law school. So I basically said, I'll do whatever you want. Just, you know, can I do something? And so I split time between BK Miller, uh, Super Liquors and um, and Senator Miller's office, you know, literally doing whatever they needed from watering the plants to making coffee to responding to letters and now you're, then, you're at university of maryland at this time did you think you might want to get into the the political game or were you thinking ah, maybe i'll be a lawyer what was your sort of mindset about your career at that point yeah so i always figured i was going to law school um i never i always had kind of an interest in things but i i wouldn't say i got into it with any kind of plan um You know, I grew up in New Jersey, so I didn't have deep roots here or a network or anything of that nature. So um, it it really is one of those things of, you know, you you get on the ride and let it take you where it takes you. And and I I was fortunate that it was a a good ride. So from there, uh, that's interesting. I never knew the Bromwell part. (laughs) Yes, that was my first job in Annapolis. And um uh, you know, during that time, got to meet a lot of people and, and um, you know, learn just by listening, which is how I learned. To be- you might be able to help me with this, Joe. My dream, you know, everything I do when I like try to do these things like uh, save the sun or, uh, what, you know, uh, save the preakness or it's just to not relive the trauma of losing the cult again as a young boy. Uh, my family, they were big into that and it was really like a cultural loss for me as a kid. And I was so, so I was always interested in having Tom Bromwell come on and talk about all the moves they made to try to keep the Colts. Um, That would be a dream podcast. I was sharing that story with Ray Glendening the other day and he said, yeah, yeah, that's good, but you've got to have 
my dad, Governor Paris Glendening. You got to have Joe Bryce and Sushant on, and they can tell you how we got the Ravens to Baltimore. And I was like, you know, that's that's the difference between a Baltimore mindset and a Maryland mindset. Right, positive, right. right? That's um, funny. So talk to me about uh, your, your your the so, onset. So of yeah, career. I went to um, I went to law school. Um, I came back my first summer, worked for him again. This just, is Georgetown Law School. This is Georgetown. Um, worked for him again, like during session and uh, not during session, during the summer. Um, and then about a year, I went to private practice to Covington and Burling in D.C. And almost exactly a year in, John Steerhoff, who was his chief of staff, was leaving and they called me and asked if I'd be interested. And I was frankly too, too young to know what I was getting into really. And I'm, I'm glad because that I thought about it and, and. Ms. John kind of, Steerhoff was an adult chief of staff, right? Yes, I mean, he yes. was like the realest deal we could ever encounter, right? He, John, John's a great person and was great at that job. He staffed Mike when they were in judicial proceedings together. So, you know, I had enough. And was the set of president's first chief of staff? He was his only chief of staff, right? He was the point. first one. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So, um, you know, I had enough of a perspective to know I was interested in it, but really didn't have a full sense of, of what exactly, how prestigious and big and, and uh, you know, all encompassing that job was. So I was 26. Um, it was, you know, so I've basically been down here my whole professional life. Um, and then three years into working for Senator Miller, uh, Steve Larson left to become the insurance commissioner. And uh, I got hired by Governor Glenn Denning. Um, that was in the summer of 97. Um, You're not going to get away with that. Like on this podcast, Joe, you're not going to get away with that. You got to tell the story about how that switch occurred because it's famous. So it what is it? Famous. The Senate president made you write a letter and tell me how this thing went down. Yeah. So um, Governor Glenn Denning at the time was going around the state to different places and having ceremonial bill signings. Um, and when you look at uh, the constitution, the, bills are supposed to be signed in the presence of the president and the speaker. And so, you know, it was, it was frustrating to Mike and, and I guess that's a kind word. And so he said, right, write a letter and tell him he can't do this. He's not allowed to do it. And so, all right, well, let me see what I can figure out. So I sent the letter and um, went uh, a little bit, went unanswered. Um, and then uh, I, I don't remember the time frame, but shortly there so went, went, went unanswered because they had a chief legislator officer going out the door. Right. And I probably had completely outsmarted everybody and they didn't have a response <laughs> <laughs> is how I like to think about it. Um, and so when I got there, uh, you know, one of the first orders of business was Governor Glenn Denning telling me to respond to the letter. So um, I, it was pretty airtight. So I don't remember that I actually responded. But uh, yeah, that was that was one of Mike's favorite stories for sure. He was so proud of you, man. Like we did these interviews at Center Maryland. You got to hear him because 
we didn't edit him, but, uh, you know, he's got a ton of, uh, amazing staff that you all helped him for so long, but, uh, you're like a son to him. Yeah, it was, it was a very difficult, um, losing him. Um, he was like a father to me in many ways. Uh, he's, he was always good to his staff, former staff, um, you know, as, as gruff and demanding as he could be, he was, he was extremely proud of what people accomplished when they left his office. And he was always very good about people need to grow. And so when you have good opportunities, you know, some people try to keep employees longer than they should for their own reasons, instead of letting them go and, and develop. And he was always good about that. And, uh, you know, it, over the time, um, you know, the relationship developed and, and it was, um, it was special to me and, uh, his family's special to me and, and, uh, we miss him. We do. Well said. I'm trying to think of the words that were associated with Joe Bryce when in, in that first, uh, cycle or two with Glenn Denning. I was around for part of that. And I remember, you know, jumping out of the Baltimore city delegation, going up to law school around four o'clock. And then your day would just be beginning with something called Fisteria. Do you remember that? I do remember it. I didn't know what it was when it was assigned to me, but um, yeah, there have been some outbreaks of, uh, of uh, fish kills around and um you know, you remember this was the summer of 97, so we're not far away from an election year. Uh, the election was not a foregone conclusion um, at that point for re-election, given the tightness of the 94 election. That's right, Sour Bray, that's right. Yeah, and, you know, he won handily the next time. But, uh, um, yeah, we were sitting in a senior staff meeting with everybody gathered around, and it was major talking about this issue and somebody needed to take control of it and it involves the health department and natural resources and about three quarters of the way into it, it dawned on me that I was about to get this thrown on my lap. And sure enough, the new guy got the, uh, got the posterior. Um, so it started off as like a summer session kind of thing. And then it started off on like getting, getting people together, to figure out what was causing it and what to do about it. And, you know, the silver lining of all that work for me was I got to develop a relationship with Governor Hughes, who Harry Hughes, who I, I didn't know, he predated me. I knew some of the folks that, that had worked with him, um, but he chaired this group and we went all over the state together and spent a lot of time together. And, and for years after that, we'd, you know, go out to lunch when he was in town. And it really became a, a special thing for me because you don't get that opportunity um, very often to to meet and get to know people like that. Also a classic kind of old time Maryland yeah. fight. I'm going to name another one after this where you pit. It sort of pits uh, these old, I call them maybe a blue dog Democrat where you got a guy like Ron guns, a chairman of a powerful committee who seemed just to, am I getting this right? That he, he, whatever the solutions were for Fisteria, he was not on board for that. Or maybe I'm mixing these up, but it seemed like it, you were up against 
You were up against Democratic chairman of the legislature to pass your governor's progressive environmental legislation. Yeah. So, I mean, there were many aspects to it, you know, wastewater treatment plant, all designed to get nutrients, keep nutrients out of the bay. Um, and so there were multiple aspects to it, but the biggest one was um, requiring nutrient management plans from farmers and um, mandating that kind of thing was not, it's not what the role of Department of Agriculture was, and it was a very controversial thing at the time. And and I think those who represented um, those areas of the state correctly were looking out for for their people as they should. Um, and so eventually we got there, but it it was um, it was not not easy. Next one I was thinking about that that was sort of like that. I've never heard a noise. Um, Again, you're going with my 20 something memory here, but I never heard a noise in the chamber. I think I'm quoting Carol Swan, the the long time, gracious, wonderful committee staff to the Economic and Environmental Affairs Committee. We were listening into uh, it's a few years later. Uh, Governor Glendenny puts a gun bill in a bill to. um uh, require gun locks, maybe, um, and more enforcement on gun safety. Let's just put it there until you make us smarter. And you did something that was incredibly rare, uh, which was you were able to pull the bill out of committee where the chairman, Walter Baker, from the Eastern Shore was not, was not going to let that come out of his committee. And there's a special rule in the Senate rules that you utilize that people around me had not seen used ever <laughs> yeah talk to me about that experience because yeah sure so not, what, i remember when you called the rule like there was shouting on the floor like <laughs> i I'd never heard talk to me about that yeah uh so uh, i'm trying to recall the name of the rule but um uh you know we we had it's like rule 47 or so. It's, it sounds I, kind of innocuous. That's what rang, yeah. rang a bell with me, but uh, <laughs> I'll flip through it and, no, and no, find no, out. No. But uh, yeah, so we couldn't get the bill out. Uh, it was obviously um, important to to the governor. Um, and, and to be clear, you don't get these things done without the at least non-opposition of the presiding officer. But um, there was a rule that allowed to allowed you the body to bring out a bill um, if more than a majority of members signed off on saying they wanted it reported to the floor. Um, and so, you know, I basically had three lists walking around. One was, will you vote for the rule? Two was, will you vote to stop a filibuster? And three was, will you vote for the bill? And so we kind of put all that together um and then of course the bill comes out and uh there's no floor report there's no committee chair to describe it so it's just kind of there um and then senator now now senator again um chris van Hollen uh became the lead on the floor and and so managing that process was uh was was very interesting and it, it was it's not something you want to do. It's not a rule you want to use because 
presiding officers obviously don't want, they want to be able to control the flow of work. Um, but it was an extraordinary time and we, we found the, found the way to do it. And, and, uh, it, it's a, it's a fun memory. Well, enough of this Glendening Renaissance. I just had too much Glendening this week. No, I'm teasing. Um, talk to me after the Glendening administration, you go on to be like vice chancellor or associate chancellor or something at, at the University of Maryland or the University System of Maryland? University System of Maryland. So the vice Dr. chancellor Cohen, of the University System. Vice, associate at vice what chancellor. Age are you the, at what age? Uh, by then I was um, in the, I was 2002 so i would have been 34 what um, amazing yeah, yeah come on and four years so what was that like it was good i really dr kerwin came back from ohio state and became the chancellor dr brooke kerwin who had been president of the college board and he's just a wonderful person to to work for uh and work with it was challenging. There were, you know, we were in difficult financial times. And so there were the need to raise tuition and, and a lot of things that aren't that, that pleasant, but um, you know, there's a ton of fascinating things that go on at the university system and, and their campuses. And uh, it, it, it was fun. I really. Um, you laid the groundwork there for, for what, President Miller and and President Ferguson all ultimately did, which was bring together that strategic uh, uh, partnership between University of Maryland College Park and University of Maryland Baltimore. Or that hadn't really been much of a discussion at the time. Um, you know, there were always thoughts about the structure and. College Park is the flagship and what that means and how you define it. And, and um, so there wasn't a concentrated effort at that point uh, to reach the strategic partnership that um, that was eventually reached between those two institutions. Was the one of one of the more sturdy alliances of the last years of 20 last 20 years of Maryland politics forged at that moment. I call that the, the, uh, uh, Chip DePaula, Joe Bryce Alliance. Is that where that began to take form? It, it is. Yes. So Kristen, my wife was chief of staff to, or at the time. Yeah. I guess newly the co the deputy chief of staff in the speaker's office, new speaker, Mike Bush. And, um, and uh, she um, she got to know Chip first. I mostly knew him by him taking money out of our pockets. So um, <laughs> it took a while to develop. That's but, right, because Ehrlich uh, was like is a little bit of a reckoning for the university system, right? It, it was a reckoning, and um, so, but yes, eventually the three of us. Uh, developed a friendship, went out to dinner and, you know, certain things you just agree not to talk to talk about after you run him into the ground the first time. So, um, and, and to this day, he's like family to us and, and, and our kids and, um, uh, learned a lot from him. Um, and, uh, still see him very, very often. Now, I don't know if these were your favorite years, but they were my favorite years right after that. Um, Governor O'Malley planned on having, you know, a pedal to the metal, 
progressive agenda. Um, he was there for eight years. You were there as his chief legislative officer for six, six, six years. Yeah. So I, I go ahead. So I, um, I was at the university and, uh, I had some interest in coming back. There were some people interested in me coming back. So um, I kind of, it was fortunate in, by the time the election came, um, I kind of knew I was going. And so I got to spend a lot of time with, with Governor O'Malley and his team um, transitioning from one administration to another. Um, and so kind of got to be there from the ground floor uh, with with a lot of good people that he had around him um, and learned, you know, a ton about that part of governing. And, and um, of course, then the recession hit. And, and by November of 2007, um, which was less than a year into his term, we were in special session um, dealing with everything from slots to healthcare to sales tax, income tax, corporate income tax in a very grueling, I think it was eight day session um, where nobody wanted to be there, but, um, but we got it done and, and um, you know, spent the next five years governing and doing stuff that he wanted to do because that stuff isn't much fun. And that did make Chip jealous at all that you got the slots done in like 15 minutes when it took them four years to not get it done. We talked about some (laughs) of the dynamics around that. Hey, I got a serious question for you. Um, When you come in, you're, you're, you're super accomplished by the time the second governor asks you to lead his legislative agenda. Are you, at that point, are you almost, I mean, obviously you're working for the governor, he's your boss, but aren't you almost in, in a position of the, that you are, aren't you almost a sort of a, a, with as much credibility as you had with the, the presiding office, you can't, you seem to be a, a, a sort of a broker between all of those interests. I mean, they all kind of felt like you were their person, even though you reported to the governor uh, am, am I am I getting that wrong or misstating that? Is there? It just seemed to me like you had a unique amount of power as a chief legislative officer that second time around. And all you have to do is look at the accomplishments of that administration. Um, which, how, how do you how do you forge that balance? Um, you know, it was interesting. The um, yes, there was something to that. I don't know. I never. I never think of in terms of it as power because nobody elected me to anything. So I never felt that I had power to exercise. I had a knowledge of people and the process and the issues that um, was valuable to an administration coming from the mayor's office, uh, relationships with with Mike and Mike at the time. And so it was it was kind of an easy transfer to try and work things out when things could be worked out. And I, that's what I tried to do my whole career in government. Um, I wasn't super confrontational. It was always kind of, how did we get that? How do we get there 
forget how we got here. How do we move forward? Um, and it was a good opportunity to, to uh, work with the three of them to try to move things forward. Yeah, you're sort of the ambassador of the common ground, which is uh, I was going to say, and I was going to say you and Chip and Kristen. That was sort of the common sense coalition. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. You, you know, ask for us, me, it remains the common sense. Yes. <laughs> for me, it was funny because uh, I got to do Governor O'Malley's um, independent expenditure super PAC during the unauthorized super PAC during the uh, his presidential gambit. And my job was real easy, uh, which is it's always been the same job. It's like, what did Joe Bryce accomplish here? Because I would literally, I would literally make these ads up that were like, "Hey, we passed gay marriage. Hey, we did, uh, you know, uh, uh, America leading gun safety. Hey, we did these post pandemic grades, you know." And just so much of it was legislative accomplishments. You know, he really had a box. He really had a big set of uh, boxes that he wanted to check and threw that all on your shoulders. And then yeah, ran I mean, on it and then ran on it. Well, as well as he, as well, he should. I mean, I, I think that, you know, there is one governor and, and any ability I had to do those things, you know, gets derived from that office. And you're in a position where you have the ability to influence things. Um, but in my mind, there was always a, a very clear distinction between me and and the elected officials. Um, and, you know, unless he provides that empowerment none of those things i don't do any of those things um and so I, I was fortunate to have a good relationship with them i think they trusted me pretty early on um and i got to do a lot of great great things um most prominently of them was the uh, marriage equality bill which took a couple years to get done and was um very contentious at times. But when you look back, Maryland was one of the first states to uh, pass that as a bill. Other states had had court cases or or ballot initiatives, and we were among the first to really have our legislature and governor stand up and say that this is the right thing to do. Um, and that, to me, will always be a very meaningful issue. After the O'Malley, I'm just, I haven't even gotten through your introduction, right? This is, this is you know, <laughs> hang on. You got to warn me on your time. Um, I want to talk about your exit from the administration. You go to a stalwart lobbying firm, and it relates back to the Ravens for me because uh, I always associate, like I said, first times I come into the state house, there's this big you know, um, Johnny Unitas type figure in you. Uh, and then now when I go to the Ravens game, the the lobbyist for the Ravens is a guy named Joe Bryce and his partner, Nick Manis. Um, and when you go to a Ravens game, there's this, can I tell this, this is amazing tailgate. And the reason it's an amazing tailgate is because it's a total who's who of all of Maryland, period. And I think it's, I think it's BYOB, which is why I think it's the greatest party because people aren't coming for the food or the alcohol or anything like that. They are coming to see uh, Manis and Canning. Um, uh, talk, talk to me a little bit about this perfect fit of a firm you found yourself in. Yeah, so 
I'd been friends with with Nick and uh, John Favaza for many years. And really, when I came out to private practice, it was a matter of where can I go where my quality of life is going to be the best. It wasn't about, you know, money or clients or anything like that. I, I really wanted to maintain some balance between uh, work and and uh, enjoying life and and to be able to do that with people you work with uh, you know our families all know each other and you know your kids weddings and things like that and it, it makes for a, a good work experience and um, you know the tailgate is it's all Nick and uh, a group of group of Nick and his friends who have had it for a long time. Um, it's got a good location, so people come by. Sometimes too many people, but uh, <laughs> like me, without any, I, <laughs> no, no, I never bring the beer. You know, I feel, I'm like <laughs> sneaking in there behind Mark Puente or some other no, powerful no, figure. You're, you're always welcome. Um, but yeah, it, it's good. It's a good time to spend an hour, hour and a half with with friends mostly, and others kind of stop by. Um, but yeah, that's that's all all Nick's uh, all Nick's doing. Talk to me about uh, Favaza. He he kind of came up with Kristen, right? I think they were co-committee counsel when the speaker Mike Bush back before he was speaker, he was head of economic matters. I think. Um, talk about your relationship, your friendship he's always been one of these advocates in Annapolis. He's too good to be true, man. He's just got an incredible mind. Uh, and then his temperament is, is to die for. Yeah. He's um, so yes, John and Kristen worked on committee together uh, for, for chairman Bush and then both went over to the speaker's office um, when he became speaker. Eventually we're, co-chiefs of staff until John left in 2011, I guess. Um, and really, as you describe him, um, very smart, um, isn't, you know, doesn't try to take over the room, um, but very smart and very even tempered. Um, although I've seen him not so even tempered once in a while, but, um, those are other stories. I saw him. I uh, saw him as the lobbyist for the railroad company, and I was like, "Man, this guy makes you know he makes people want to be fans of the railroad." <laughs> you know, that's not easy. No, it's not easy. And uh, uh, Senator Feldman on that bill was like, "I can't believe I'm still talking about this bill on the floor." And uh, it, it was, uh, it was, it was one of John's accomplishments. But he, he's, he knows the subject matter. Um, he knows the people and he certainly knows how to, how to get around and just, um, you know, I was lucky to get to know him, uh, through, through Kristen originally, um, mostly him asking her why this guy kept coming around, uh, committee. Um, but building that friendship, uh, has been important. And I think it's just kind of another, another factor in, in kind of the quality of life and, and making decisions to on where you, where you want to work and live and, and uh, who you want to be around. Well, I know he's having too much fun. Uh, your other partner, uh, Nick is having too much fun um, 
with with lobbying and, and his private practice. But man, I look at that guy, I look at his family. He's producing world-class athletes. His wife's amazing. I'm like, we got to run that guy for governor. <laughs> he would, now he would be good. He would be Yeah, good. he'd he'd be fun. Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, what a what a great ride he's been on. And and you know, for him to be able to work with your father uh for many years as he was able to do. Um and really learn from them is uh, is special and and um, you know Nick's Nick's very steady, very seasoned, um, and like you said, just a a great family, two great grandchildren now. Um, you know he big lacrosse player at Maryland, although as his son will remind him, he didn't win a national championship, but young Nick did so. Uh, that's a bit of a sore spot. We're not we're not huge uh, fans of anyone except Marilyn Lacrosse. I can tell you that. And then you got Andrea Mansfield, who keeps me updated. Like she, you know, source documents. Uh, I see on LinkedIn. I'm like, oh look, there's a, there's only a few lobbyists in Annapolis that will post like the actual documents that legislators learn from. <laughs> and she's like, like giving a hint, like this is actually available to all of you. So you're fortunate. This to is the public research. information. <laughs> she's um, Andrea is a, a great great person who um, has always been a hard worker and thorough from, you know, I knew her going back to her time in state government at uh, Department of Budget Management, Higher Education Commission, Labor. Um, she's thorough. She's she's smart. She's extremely likable. And, you know, particularly on the likable and organized end, that wasn't exactly something that, that the three of us specialized in before she came here. So um, she's filled a very natural void and she's done it very well of of doing a lot of the the twitter and the uh social media and the emails that you refer to and you know all trying to keep people informed of of what's going on down here and and she she does a remarkable job at that as well as so many other legislative things that she works on so i've 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 taken your time here like i've taken a good chunk of your time do I have enough time to to um, do a little run through of what we could be seeing in the legislative session, or or, or uh, sure, awesome. Sure. So let's start. Let's start with uh, something completely unfamiliar to the two of us: uh, cannabis reform. Uh, talk Heard to me about. about it's a very serious subject now. Talk to me about what just happened. A uh, pretty strong mandate from the people, right? But now. You're like, thanks, people. You want to legalize this. Now we got to figure out how to, how to make it all uh, make sense in a recreational context, going from medical to recreational cannabis in Maryland. What's that mean? And what are some of the hiccups we've got to watch out for? Yeah, so I've worked with the current medical growers and processors pretty much from the beginning um, in the fall and winter of, of 2016 i think that because that was actually a hogan reform not a no that didn't happen in o'malley right by the time the licenses got awarded it was so the bill passed during o'malley and then uh by the time the regulations and the licensing stuff happened um it was towards the beginning of governor hogan's term um 
And I have to say that the, the General Assembly has approached this correctly, which is from the angle of social justice and the over-incarceration of, of people of color for cannabis that was long overdue to be reformed. And I think that that, you know, everybody should remember that that's the driving force behind this is it, it's not to, um, you know, give everybody a chance to go to the dispensary. It's it's really taking a more reasoned approach at, at how we um, how we enforce laws. And, and, and that by that, uh, you mean like white guys like me could pretty safely uh, carry, you know, Ill illicit cannabis around back in the day and not get in trouble. And then, you know, people of color had completely different experiences, very different experiences. And, um, you know, a small amount of marijuana possession, you get held and they look for other things that this person may have done. And it, it really is just grossly unfair. And I think, um, like yeah, people know, always ask about white privilege, like that is one of the finest examples that that's one of the one of the primary ones you can use. And unfortunately, it's indicative of a lot of other areas like that. But um, yes, it, it, it really uh, was the appropriate driving force behind this. And now, as you said, you have to um, get about the business of regulating it, taxing it, uh, testing it. And so that's what we'll be doing this session. I think, um, again, the focus is, is on the right things, um, eliminating the illicit market. Now that you have a legal product that's, um, you know, under state control and regulation and will be a safer product than people are getting now uh you know what you're getting it's tested um this is a big deal man so this this regulate so so what you're saying like even though we'll have a regulated cannabis market we should expect to see what's going on in in new york and other places where even though they've gone full recreation there's now a product on the street that's not only unregulated and illicit, but it hasn't gone through all of the the health, the checks and balances. You don't know what's in it, and they could price that stuff a little lower. Is that what's going on? And then, and then the yeah, very you, communities we're trying to serve and protect and give equity to, or get are are now being inundated with the illicit market. Or am I conflating? So that no, the illicit market is is omnipresent. It's it's there. Even after you have a regulated system, if you can bring, you know, 70 percent, 80 percent of the sales into the uh, legal market, you're accomplishing something. There's always going to be, um, at least as demonstrated in other states, some level of illicit market. Um, what having a legal market helps to do, um, one, you can, as the General Assembly is, is again appropriately focused on, you can provide uh, opportunities for diverse groups of people to get into the business and particularly those who have been um, unfairly treated under the law, communities that have been un underserved. Um, and so you, you give a structured environment uh, where people can build businesses. Um, the testing is extremely important. You have had counterfeit vape cartridges in 
in the Midwest where people got sick. You have even in a state like New York um, where they had hemp farmers take the first shot at growing product. There was so much mold in the product that it was failing testing. So they got rid of the testing standards. Um, and those are the types of things that you, you don't want to see. And, you know, New York's illicit market, it's a how to on not to do things. And when you have food trucks that are selling cannabis and, and people just opening stores and saying we're here and what are you going to do about it and open sales in the park. Uh, I don't think that's what Maryland wants. And so, yeah, there's uh, a little of that going on in DC. If you want that, right. If, if you want right. some quirky market, it's a, it's a quirky market. Down there. You, you trade a, you know, you buy Baseball. a t-shirt and get an eighth and you know, right. there's all kinds of that stuff going on. So really I think it's, it's how do you, there's, they're working on how do you, uh, establish a market that can sell at least as soon after legalization? How do you ensure that there are opportunities for diverse people to get businesses? Um, we didn't do a great job of that the first round of medical licenses. We did a much better job of that the second round, but now we have to help those businesses get up and running and, and um, that hasn't been done yet. So we need to do that as well as provide new opportunities. Um, and, and you want a safe tested product and all that stuff costs money. So you have to be conscious of, you know, the testing isn't cheap. The, the security systems, the seed to sale tracking system isn't cheap. Um, and so you have to be sensitive about tax rate at the end of the day, if you want to cut into that illicit market. Um, because people people tend to do what they're doing now, right? So if you if you have uh, an outlet to um, get product and you're happy with it now, somebody's got to give you a reason to to change and price and and security and safety. Uh, hopefully, will will help to do that. Uh, the people of Maryland two years ago, another sort of uh, referendum issue coming to life. Two years ago, I think the the, Mar the people of Maryland said, hey, we want to give the legislature more budget authority. Um, my understanding is the state of Maryland's always been a state where the governor puts forward a budget and then the legislature, the General Assembly can only uh, subtract or take away from that uh, cut from the budget. Now, legislature can add to the budget. Is that like um, a dream or a nightmare for a guy like you? Uh, for a guy like me now in in the private sector, it's it's good. You have the ability to, you know, get two bites of the apple if you're not able to get something in the ingoing budget or get the governor to submit it in a supplemental budget. Then you have the ability to make your case, you know, to the general assembly. I, at the risk of alienating part of your audience, I never liked it. Uh, I've, I helped two governors defeat it. And really not because I don't think the General Assembly should have authority, but I think that they have, the system wasn't 
broke to the extent that it needed to be overhauled. Uh, there was the ability to put mandates in the budget and say the governor shall appropriate X amount. Uh, ability to fence off money and, and tie the governor's hands and try to force him to, to fund these priorities. And now I think this just swings it very, very far the other way because they can still do mandates. They can still use these other tools. Um, you know, in my mind, if, if, if you wanted to start over with a system, we should have looked at the entire budget system um, and, and that interaction before, uh, before making a move. But, you know, I don't know that anybody outside of me and 20 other people really <laughs> focus on or care about it. Well, you know, if, um, one of the things I'm wondering about, I'm trying to find like some of the, one of these early leave no one behind flashpoints, you know, where it's like the, the campaign meets the governance uh, modality. You know, there's a, a there seems to be a lot of talk about boost, um, which is basically a subsidy to non-public uh, education kids, I think. Right. Um Yes. Uh, and that has been a long time problem, I think, for the teachers union and other some other educations advocates. It's been a huge issue of concern for people who support it, like Catholic schools that I work around or independent schools, uh, Jewish day schools all around the country. Um, does this. Uh, does the legislature being able uh, having this new power, does that add a new wrinkle or dynamic to this controversy? Or do you think this will be um, or, or what do you think? I think from a student of government perspective, it's going to be an interesting couple of years getting this started. I think that. Um, I don't think anybody knows the ins and outs of how this is going to change the process. For example, the governor can line item veto uh, items now in the operating budget, which he could never do before. He had that authority in the capital budget, but not in the operating budget. So the General Assembly passed a budget. That was it. Now he has the opportunity to go in and pick some of these things off if he desires to. Um, and so what that does is I think it will eventually highlight some issues where there's kind of soft consensus among legislators that, you know, this is okay. We did this over here, so we can do this over here. And now um, they may at some point be presented more starkly with, with an issue that, you know, they never had to isolate in that way before. Um, and I think that's just kind of one example of, of something nobody talks about that was in that constitutional amendment, but I don't know how it's going to work and I'm not sure anybody else can predict how it's going to work. Decarbonization, big issue in Maryland. Uh, you've had a lot of experience dealing with the most uh, challenging energy issues, regulate, uh, utility regulatory issues in the state. We've even had elections come down to, you know, the Public Service Commission's decisions. Uh, talk to me about this. Uh, I don't know if you got a dog in the fight or not, but if you could just talk generally about the the utility issue and this this demand for climate action coming up against 
you know, the capacity of ratepayers to handle it or the utility to build the infrastructure. Um, or you can tell me I'm framing it all the wrong way. No, I think it, I think that it's extremely complicated to say the least. And I think that some of the, you know, for example, some of the efforts to go to, uh, and we do represent Pepco and Constellation, so um, I would want to disclose that. But as a practical matter, if you want to go to all electric power, for example, can the grid handle it? Is the capacity there? Um, and it's not necessarily just a policy choice. It's it's a matter of making sure that you can actually do what you want to do. Um, you know, in an analogous way, you want to move to electric vehicles, which we've started to do. People need to be able to reliably charge them when they're out on the road. And so, um, you know, I think that these things are very, very difficult to address and they're emotional. And I think clearly there's a need um, for policy in this area, uh, but it, it it proves very difficult to find that balance. We had a big, brutal Democratic primary uh, to, to elect the Democratic nominee who went on to be the governor-elect, Wes Moore. I don't know that I have ever seen a governor or a candidate, a victorious. I've never seen a Maryland governor get the support of both presiding officers in the primary election. Does that sound right? Yeah, I wouldn't think that it happens yeah. too often. Um, I know, what, four, eight years ago, four years ago, uh, I think President Miller was supporting County Executive Baker. and But right. but the level of support for the governor-elect, I think um, it, it was uh, it was a little unprecedented, and I think it spoke to, it speaks to um, his ability to to motivate people to try to make progress on things, and I think people heard that message. And and um, you know he's a he's a very um, earnest and and engaging figure, and I think that that helped a lot of people see you know we we should get behind him, and we need to figure out how to work with him. Yes, it's interesting. The le- so the legislative legislative leadership played such a big role in his election, and now we have this new tool um, to 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 manage the budget, where the legislature is, has much more of a, a hand in it. Maybe that's a good thing that they sort of figure out a culture and protocol from a place of togetherness and alignment versus. You know, basically, if you had any other outcome, it, it may have been more of a challenge. Yeah, I think that that certainly plays into their relationship, at least in the short term. Um, you know, it's untested, so everybody will be learning about it at the same time. But, you know, from my perspective, having spent 11 years in the governor's office, my focus would be be on trying to make that change as seamless as possible. And I would still be trying to uh, develop consensus on, on the budget and the issues around it as usually they're able to do. Um, And, you know, just because you have power doesn't mean you could, you should, or uh, will use it. Um, 
but I think it, it, to the extent it helps negotiations and helps consensus, uh, it will be a good thing for their relationship. Um, and that's all yeah, major- that's all majority leader Lucky turned chief legislative officer, right? So yes, top yes. legislative actor going over to the to the governor's office now in, in your old job. Yes, and I, I think he'll do great. I mean, we we've spoken and. Um, you know, he's obviously very smart and cares about these institutions. And in my mind, that's 90% of the battle. Um, it's different. It's not like being in a legislature, but, you know, you figure it out. Um, it's a it's a tough job and you really have to be accessible to people and be available and, um you know, help. It's like you look like Gulliver by the end of the the end of this the session. You know, you're pulled in every direction. And yeah, you are. I mean, it, it's <laughs> it's um, you know, you're there to support the governor and and so and and to to help the state. So you get pulled in a million directions. You try to keep a level head. You try to um, balance out all those things and meet as many of them as you can. Um, but you know, and not take it personally. I mean, it's, uh, which is tough to do. It's tough to do. You taught me that a long time ago, 25 <laughs> years ago, you, Senator Collins brought me into a room and said, I, you need to listen to this guy. And there you were. And you said, Damien, just can't, you can't take this stuff the way you're taking it. You just, you know, you can't, you can't, you all, I th- I'm not going to, I don't want to misquote you, but you almost said something. The way I took it is like, you just can't, care that much because all of these people that you if you basically what you were saying is you're gonna have to walk over all the burned ground you make damien <laughs> right i, yeah, mean, I, mean, I, I, I don't know uh, that i got that till 20 years later <laughs> well, i'm glad it sunk in um yeah it, it's you i always thought that that people in these positions have to be kind of the level head in the room. They don't, you don't have a constituency. You're not vested in any issue. I care about things, obviously. Um, I I care about many things and. But not to to the point, but not to the point where you'll disrupt the culture of the institution. I can't, it's not, it's not in the governor's interest or the general assembly's interest to have strictly an advocate in that position. I mean, what do you what do you need that person for? You've got advocates. Um, so I think the the value becomes looking at a problem, looking at an issue, hearing what everybody's saying, not even to each other usually, and trying to figure out is there an answer here where you thread the needle and you know nobody's super happy, but but. Uh, but it works and you move on. Um, well, everybody's going to kill me for tits for making this so personal and not having Tom Brady tell us what all the plays are for this legislative <laughs> session. So do you, do you have anything you could offer my audience as some sort of uh, a little teaser for all of your insight and uh, ideation about what we should be seeing this session? Any, uh, any I, I mean, I think can leave first of all, the, the, best thing people can do is be patient. Um, the governor elect, um, 
was elected on a set of set of ideas. Those are done over four years, not over four months. And you really need to approach it as a marathon and, and not as a sprint. And if you um, try to rush into doing things collectively, it, it, you typically don't do it right. And I think, you know, if you look back to 07, we could have proposed all those things in a regular session, but doing them after everybody had a, a, a session to get their feet wet, um, you know, really, I think, paid off. Um, so wow. I think people need to be patient. Uh, you, you can't do everything right away. Uh, so I think that's that's the biggest thing to be patient with each other and and uh, patient with the governor elect soon to be governor um, because you, you it's impossible to do all those things. And I think the other I think it's important for everybody to focus on their relationship and opening dialogues and setting a tone for the next four years where agree or disagree, people are going to keep working together and, uh, and move forward because that, when that breaks down, it's, it's, uh, and, and it did several times in the past and it has, um, when you don't have the ability to, to talk to one another, um, it makes it very difficult. And when you're, the governor, the general assembly session kind of takes an outsized role in your um, success or failure in people's minds of that uh, administration. And, you know, by no means, I, I don't know the percentage, but 80% of what a governor is entrusted to do doesn't really happen between January and April. Um, and so I think, you know, Another that's a business. De that's a business development tip. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, it's a reality. You know, you've got you've got all these agencies out there. You have important missions. You have things you want to accomplish. Um, but you're at the whim of circumstance and and people. And you have you know an escape from a juvenile facility, or you have you know a tragedy somewhere or a snowstorm, all these things can knock you off your stride. And, you know, Governor Glenn Enning was exceptionally good at just moving ahead. Just keep your eyes straight ahead, keep doing what you're doing um, and you'll get there because this is, it's not easy to address the issues that people want to address. And um, I think, deliberative and thoughtful is, is always going to be better than, than rushing into something. Now, Joe, I, I do call you the goat, but one time you really let me down was I wanted to do a center Maryland series on like what it's like to be an intern in Annapolis. And your daughter was interning what, uh, three decades after you were interning for Senate president, Mike Miller in his final year on planet earth. Give us an update. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, I'm very proud of both my kids. My son's a um, aerospace engineer, works for a NASA contractor. And my daughter uh, graduated from Salisbury at, in the middle of the pandemic, as many people did. And, um, you know, has, has expressed an interest, not 
hopefully not in what I do, but in in being a productive part of, of policy and government. And, um, you know, she she loved working with Mike. It was really special for me to to get to see that relationship 30 years afterwards and you know she used to be in his campaign mailers as you know generic kid number seven sitting on the steps in a you know Christmas outfit and um you know the the hundred dollars he'd slip them was like the biggest thing in the world at eight seven or eight uh and so to see her kind of down here and and getting to know people and she's not just anywhere sounds like uh she's better at the politics than you are she seems like she picked a winner well she she did and uh you know i for all the things i did i've never really been a campaign person um that's your beauty but, Jill. uh yeah but i think you know she she uh fortunately had some time and wanted to volunteer and so she volunteered and for the uh for the uh, Westmore campaign and and the coordinated, um, and you go and back were, with and, you go back with Dawn in the Glendening days too, right? It's just a yes, family affair. Yep, yep. We go back quite some time. I, I Dawn, the not, first lady of the state of Maryland. I, I let, let me just say, first lady Moore is how I ought to better get it used to saying it, right? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> no, she's going to be great in that role. You see her now and it's like, it's like, wow, she's already kind of knocking it out of the park. And I didn't know the governor liked extremely well. Um, I've gotten to know him over the last year or so. Um, and so I'm very optimistic. And, and I think, you know, for Madison, the chance to uh, be a part of something like that um, and, and help in a tiny bit a tiny way get things started for for the administration is is uh it's it's nice for me to watch and you know who knows where it leads and i i told her you keep your head down be nice to people and work hard and something will happen so and, if uh, i if i want the uh governor elect of the state of maryland to show up at uh the St. Agnes, the Ascension St. Agnes legislative breakfast on January 9th at 8 a.m. I got an email. <clears throat> Madeline Bryce. Is that what you're Madison, telling me? Madison, Madison yes, Bryce. Sir. I better get the name right. Uh, I, I don't know that she has the authority to make any of that happen. <laughs> uh, and I think right now she's in the uh, great position that that many of us have been of just telling people no to everything. That's and, right. Just a very patience, quick, right? Turned uh, to her old yeah. man said patience. Yes, our uh, our mutual friend PJ Hogan, former senator, called me a couple weeks ago and said I uh, sent an uh, invite in to see if he could get the governor elect somewhere, and it was it was late notice, and he gets a. Uh, an email from Madison Bryce. <laughs> He's like, wait a minute. <laughs> what, what is this? And uh, so it was, a, it was a funny little moment. And, uh, but she's interesting. She won't always, she won't always tell people, you know, that she knows me or, you know, that I'm her father and which is good. She's trying to make her own way. And um, I hope it's not a lack of pride, but she'll love this. Uh, yeah, she, yeah, <laughs> yeah, she'll love this. Yeah, she she has no problem talking about Kristen. She doesn't always bring me up, and I'm <laughs> starting to wonder why. Um, but no, I want her to. I want her to do things on her own, and I want her to, like everybody does for their kids, you want them to be happy and find something they like doing. And so, you know, if this is it, great. If it's not, we'll go on to the next thing. 
Madison, the Federalist Papers. I get it. I'm, I'm catching on. I got it. It's a good, strong name for a woman, in my opinion. That's what and I always se- liked about it. Our second Bryce in the Man- Maryland Manual. Very exciting. <laughs> I don't know that she's made the, the the cutoff for being in a manual yet. She doesn't want to be in that manual with that job. <laughs> we're, we're all going to reach out to her. Well, it would help me if when people Google me, something other than me comes up. So hopefully she'll she'll make a name. That I mean, what what other kind of advice do you want from the goat, <laughs> Joe? I just want to say I know you hate when people talk like this, so that's why I'm going to do it. Uh, you have given a whole uh, generation of people interested in government and politics uh, excellence that we try to run to. And you have been a beacon out there of integrity and excellence. And if you ever made a mistake, you know, you were the first one to admit it. It's been uh, it's been an honor to know you and witness your career because we all grab onto it in our own little ways. I think um, I can speak for a lot of us and and just wanted I know that was not your intention, uh, but um, you got a lot of Lamars and other people following you. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's very kind of you. I mean, I, I, again, I think you just you just try to be a decent person and approach things decently and, and good things can follow. And uh, it's very kind. And, and I learn stuff from people all the time and it, it helps form who you are. And so, you know, to the extent, you know, when I got here, I was 26 years old. I'm 54 now. And you go from being, you know, the young kid on the block to who is this guy? And, uh, you know, well, he remembers something from 1997. Uh, and so that role, you just you just evolve with it and and um, use institutional knowledge and help people when they ask for help and keep your head down. Well, Joe, thank you for being so gracious with your time today. Thank you. It was good speaking with you. We'll see you soon in Annapolis. Yes, sure will. Thank you. Thanks. Until next time, Center Maryland, the Lobby Pod with the GOAT. Hey, Joe.